Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would grant grace to us, grace to, to listen, to hear. Um, we thank you that Sundays come uh, regularly, every week, every week for us. And we pray that on this day that you would help us. That you would increase our knowledge of you, that we may know you better, that we may walk with you. Uh, so that you would be pleased. And uh, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Colossians in chapter 1, please. Uh, Colossians in chapter 1. I want to read, beginning with verse 15, I want to read through verse 23. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Hear the word of God. He, and the he there is, is Jesus He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I want this morning simply to take up, if God will help me, this verse 20. It reads, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This particular uh, verse strikes me uh, for a number of reasons. One, of course, taking it up in due course as we're working our way through uh, this letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. But, but also because if misunderstood, it can result in a grievous error that has been entered into at times throughout the history of the church. Not the history of our church, but the history of the church And so, in one sense, if I could just speak upon it, to keep us, I hope, from that error. Um, That's a bit of a negative approach to Scripture. I don't usually take that approach. I don't usually take the approach of telling you what a passage doesn't mean. Uh, But I think in this regard, it's helpful to us to see what it doesn't mean. I will take us to what I think it does mean, what church ministers throughout the centuries have taken it to mean but but I want first perhaps to deal with it in the sense of what it what it doesn't mean and it's this little expression and through him to reconcile to himself all things now some have taken that to mean that all therefore all people will be savingly reconciled to God through the cross of Christ See what it says. I mean, if you're just reading this, uh, how would it strike you? 
Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things. So why would that not mean, therefore, then everyone, every human being, without exception, would be reconciled to God? There's a group of people who call themselves universalists, who believe in what is called a universal salvation. Uh, it had its origins, interestingly, in an old church father named Origen, who was a believer, but who had this notion that perhaps all would be saved because of verses like this in Scripture that have this sense of, of, of universal, it appears, reconciliation. So our question is, uh, what then does it mean if it doesn't mean that? Uh, reconciliation obviously has this sense that there are two parties who need to be brought together in some way. They're hostile towards each other. In the old language, there's enmity between one another. We use this not only in a relationship to people, but we use this in terms of our bank statements. We reconcile our bank statements, at least we should, on a regular basis. And uh, what that means is that the bank gives us a number and we have a number, and those two numbers should come together in some sense and make friends. Uh, and um, and so, so we do that. And if there is enmity between the two of them, that is not necessarily a good thing. And so we need to work at that to make sure that they're brought together, they're reconciled. When two people are at odds with each other, and they need to be brought together. They need to be reconciled. So there's this sense of, of reconciliation. In fact, as we move through this passage in verse 21, it speaks very particularly of reconciliation between people and God. Notice verse 21. And you, Paul's writing to these who are you. He's not writing to the whole world at this point. He's writing to the you that he's addressed, and that is, in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. So he's writing to believers. So when he says you, he means you people who believe in Colossae. Those of you I'm writing to you, the faithful brothers there, the ones who've heard the gospel and learned it from Epaphras and have believed it. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he, that is God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Uh, so, so there has been this reconciliation between this group of people, to whom Paul writes, and God. They've been brought together. But he says there was an hostility uh, uh, before you were reconciled, before you were brought together. And we realize that that hostility between God and human beings and human beings and God is, in a sense, on both sides. And it's important for us to see that. That is, there's a sense in which God has something against us which keeps him away from us. And it's our sin. And what is between us is this thing that the Bible refers to often as the wrath of God, his righteous judgment against us. We have revolted, rebelled against him. He as king, we have committed treason against him. And that treason is to deny that he's the king. And so we've spoken against him. We said we're not going to follow him as king. We're not going to trust him as king. We're not going to pledge our loyalty to him as king. He's God, treason. Thus, we've been expelled, if you will, from the kingdom. 
and that hostility exists and God will not let us in. Now, the, the amazing thing or the, the spectacular thing really about being expelled from the kingdom of God is that we move from life to death, from light to darkness. We saw that in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from the garden, from the very rule, reign, kingdom, if you will, gracious, loving kingdom of God. And so they were expelled. There's this sense of expulsion, this sense of hostility then. God has something against us, and it's our sin. And thus he, being holy and righteous, this one who cannot acquit the guilty, what's he to do but condemn us? But there's also a sense of hostility from us to him because now in our sin God is perceived by us as a threat he's the king but we want to be king he's the king of his kingdom we want to be king over our kingdom and so so there's this problem he creates he's, he represents a threat to us and so he hostile towards us us hostile towards him how will this reconciliation ever take place we know it takes place through the gospel making peace the scripture says by the blood uh, of his of his cross and we see this the, the cross of jesus as the wisdom as the power as the love of god the wisdom of god how is this dilemma to be solved how is it that we could ever be reconciled to God when he is in a hostility against us and we against him? How will those hostilities, that enmity, ever be assuaged? Most especially on his side, because his is justified. Ours isn't justified. We shouldn't see God as a threat. We should see him as the one to whom we should pledge our loyalty. God's enmity, God's hostility, God's wrath is justified. We've turned from him. We've sinned against him. So, so it's justified. How can that ever be assuaged, this righteous, holy God? But in the wisdom of God, he comes with a plan that will work. That plan is that his son, this one who is worth us all, will take upon himself his, God's, own wrath. And he does it by way of the blood of his cross, by dying for us. That's the heart of the gospel, the wisdom of God. The alternative to that is for us to simply pay the penalty. But if it's an eternal penalty, it gets us nowhere other than to be eternally paying the penalty. The other alternative, of course, is for us to be holy and righteous. I don't need to go into why that won't work. It simply hasn't, right? It just simply hasn't. We start out negative. We start out born with this nature of sin. Thus, it simply will not work. Solution only for a holy God then to punish another whose life is of such great value. And who is so much like us. That he can stand for us, his wisdom, his power, then in the midst of this death, conquering sin and death, his love, of course, and that he punishes not us, but his beloved son, the son whom he loves. This is the gospel. So his hostility is assuaged, satisfied by this work of Christ, then by his spirit, opening our eyes to see that which Christ has done. No longer is he simply judge and thus threat. No longer is he king to be avoided, but he is savior to be loved and king to be embraced, Jesus to follow. Thus, he's reconciled these believers. But the question is, what must one 
believe in order to enter into this salvation, to enter into this reconciliation, in this sense, to be reconciled to God, enemy made friend. Um, And the scripture says, yes, the scripture says that it is for those who believe it is by God's grace alone most especially, but through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. In fact, Paul here, as he's writing to this church, tells us that exactly in verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed... Right? He doesn't simply say that it doesn't really matter that you don't have to believe that whether you know it or not or whether you believe it or not, the work of Christ is sufficient and efficient to cover everybody's sins and that's that and so everyone is saved, everyone's reconciled to God. He doesn't say that at all. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. He says, this reconciliation is for those who believe and those who walk by faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which, Paul, I became a minister. So this is the only gospel. There's reconciliation, saving reconciliation for those who believe. This is, of course, utterly consistent with what we read in the scripture. For instance, in John chapter 1, we read this concerning our salvation. John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were, both, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. He said it's to those who believed in his name. Those are the ones he gave the authority to, the right to become and be called children of God. Now, in one sense, God is our father in the sense that we're all human beings and he is our creator. But not in the fatherly, intimate sense. It isn't right when people say that we're all, meaning all of humanity, we're all children of God. When you hear that and someone's going to use that as a premise for some argument, whether it's a religious argument or a political argument... You can dismiss it out of hand. Now you can argue with them, but you won't win. It's so much a part of the culture that unless you really look at the scripture and understand what it means that God is our Father, uh, you simply won't win it. But, but you'll know that they're not basing their next point on that, which is a true assertion. Because only those who believe in Jesus are born of the Spirit, born again, born into his family, adopted by him, have the right, the authority to say, I'm a child of God. I hope you understand that. I hope that doesn't sound too judgmental, but simply, simply true. Then in John chapter 3 and verse 16, the classic, what I call the football verse, because it's always at football games, um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we realize that this reconciliation, saving reconciliation, doesn't happen unless there's belief in him. The alternative that is 
perishing, not having life at all. Then in verse 18, John writes, well, quotes Jesus, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, that is, whoever believes in this one and only Son, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So you see, there isn't this universal salvation. And does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. And so we see, therefore, it isn't, there isn't this sense of universal salvation. Then verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who does not, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. So you see that. Uh, then, of course, in John and chapter 14 and verse 6, we read this. This is Jesus. He's with his disciples. Uh, he's uh, it's right before the crucifixion. He's with them, uh, relieving. He trusts their grief or helping them in the grief that they will experience upon his death. And so he's talking with them. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus makes this exclusive claim. He, Jesus, is going to the Father. We know that. He's going to be restored to the glory that he had before he came. And so he's, that's, that's where he's going. So no one can come to the Father except through him. So he says, I'm the way to the Father. There's no other path. I'm the truth. There's no other thing to believe. There's no other reliable way other than through me. And I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And, and this was what was on the lips of the apostles as they began uh, taking this message out. For instance, in Acts in chapter 4, the apostle Peter had preached concerning Jesus. Some had, many had come to faith. 3,000 had come to faith. He had just been in uh, a situation where they had healed this man who was uh, lame. They are brought before the religious authorities, brought before the council. And uh, 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 Peter explains to them, what has happened, uh, he says it's all come about because of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 4 and verse uh, 11 and 10, he said, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, that is simply true. It is only through Christ by way of knowing him, by way of 
his name. And then in Acts in chapter 10, uh, in verse 9, uh, we read this. I'm, I'm sorry, that isn't it. Yeah, at, at verse 42, at chapter 10, verse 42. Again, uh, Paul is speaking about uh, faith in Christ. And he says what Christ has done. He says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Then as the apostles come to write to us concerning this gospel, for instance, Paul in Romans in chapter 3 verse 21, he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, that is, as an atoning sacrifice, as a sacrifice to satisfy his wrath, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you see, it's all about believing in Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. What I read this morning for us for our time of, of offering is this Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no salvation apart from this belief in one's heart that manifests itself in confession. There's no magic to saying it. That isn't his point where if you can't say Jesus is Lord, then you're not saved. What it means is if you believe it in your heart, you will say it. It will, it will, it will come from your life. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are warnings throughout the scripture that we must believe. The author of Hebrews worried about the churched people speaks over and over to them about this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Saying without faith in Christ, there's no way to escape the judgment of God. Jesus speaks in Matthew 25 of a look at that judgment. He talks about sheep being separated from goats. Those who really don't believe the goats will be cast into everlasting punishment. And then, of course, we read in Second Thessalonians as... Paul tries to comfort this people. Verse 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, This is evidence of, your righteous, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered 
worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those, among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There is not a universal salvation. There is only salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Last one, Revelation and chapter 20, verse 15. This is at the end of, uh, of a, one of the scenes of judgment in the book of Revelation. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And I bring up all of that, A, because it's in the Bible, thus it's true, therefore it's important for us to know, not because I'm pounding on any particular soapbox this morning, other than to say that the message of the gospel of Christ is in one sense for everyone, necessary for everyone, and in that sense, if not believed, then there is not reconciliation with God in the sense that one is saved, that one receives adoption as his son, declared justified in his sight, redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? It's important for us. It's very solemn, I know, but it's important for us to see that. Thus, this passage, by way of its own internal consistency, as well as everything else that we read about the gospel, cannot mean that all are saved because... God is reconciling to himself all things through the blood of Christ. Now, just as an aside, it may seem a bit arrogant for any one group of people like Christians to claim to have the only way of salvation. Uh, it seems, as we've been accused, that it's arrogant to others. They say, how can you really know? How can any one people at any one point in time know that there is this only way of salvation. Doesn't everybody have a, a bit of the truth so that well, Christians have some of it and Hindus have some of it and Muslims have some of it and, and Buddhists have some of, some of it and all of that. I mean, isn't that, isn't that just simply reasonable? Isn't that simply true? And isn't it arrogant of you Christians to say that you have the only way? If I could recommend a book to you about this... It's a book called The Reason for God by a minister named Tim Keller. He is a pastor of a Presbyterian church, a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, church in New York City. Uh, uh, he wrote a book, this book called The Reason for God. His first chapter is there can't be just one true religion. And, and he deals with these, this notion of exclusivity in a very good way. Let me just give you some hints so you can... Pick this up and read it and grow and learn from it. He, he speaks to this question. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. And he goes on to say that that really isn't 
very accurate statement, because are they equally valid? Would you really put the Branch Davidians, or would you put those who, uh, who are involved in the sacrifice of their children on the same footing as other major religions? Are all religions really the same? And do they really teach basically the same stuff? By that, people normally mean, oh, all religions teach that we should love God and love each other. But the point is, who is this God we're loving, and how is it that we're to love Him? What does it mean to love Him? What does it require of us in loving Him? Does he require a holy war, for instance, in loving him? Does he require that we suicide our lives, sacrifice our lives for some particular cause in a suicidal kind of way? Who is this God? What does he require of it? What does it mean to love him? And then what does it mean to love each other? How do we express that love? There are huge differences incompatibilities one to another. Second question that's often raised, each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Let me read his response. Sometimes this point is illustrated with the story of the blind men and the elephant. Several blind men were walking along and came upon an elephant that allowed them to touch and feel it. This creature is long and flexible like a snake, said the first blind man, holding the elephant's trunk. Not at all. It's thick and round like a tree trunk, said the second blind man, filling the elephant's leg. No, it's large and flat, said the third blind man, touching the elephant's side. Each blind man could only feel part of the elephant. None could envision the entire elephant. In the same way, it's argued, the religions of the world each have a grasp on part of the truth about spiritual reality, but none can see the whole elephant or claim to have a comprehensive vision of the truth. Keller goes on to write, This illustration, however, backfires on its users. The story is told from the point of view of someone who is not blind. How could you know that each blind man sees only part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant yourself? Quotes missiologist Leslie Newbegin. There is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any of us, any of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize the absolute claims of these different, that these different scriptures make? In other words, the person who says all paths lead to God, the person who says we all have a bit of truth, is claiming for himself or herself a place that sees it all. So if he can see it all, why can't somebody else see it all? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you claimed that none of the other religions have? Another claim. Religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be true. In other words, how can anyone in one time and place say that they have a handle on that which is true for people in another time and another place? How can what seemed to be true in first century Palestine be true in 21st century China, for instance? Is the same truth the same truth? 
the objection goes like this. All moral and spiritual claims are the product of our particular historical and cultural moment, and therefore no one should claim they can know the truth, since no one can judge whether one assertion about spiritual and moral reality is truer than another. Keller counters that with his statement. If you infer from the social conditionness of all belief that no belief can be held as universally true for everyone, that itself is a comprehensive claim about everyone that is the product of social conditions. So it cannot be true in its own terms. One author says, relativity relativizes itself all the way down. And that is true. Then this point, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it. But of course, that is what we all do in all areas, whether they be a medical opinion, whether they be an educational opinion, whether it be a political opinion. But he writes this, my last one. But now the fatal, fatal flaw in this approach to religion in general and to Christianity in particular should be obvious. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religious views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be as well. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding traditional religious exclusive views. So what does this passage mean? What is Paul trying to communicate to us when he says in Colossians in chapter 1 that uh, through Christ God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two ways to think about this. One I like better than the other. So I'll save that one. One way to think about this is to, to understand the context, obviously, that we'll do that in every way of understanding Scripture. We realize in verses 15 through 20, uh, Paul is talking about Jesus, and he first, in verses 15 through 17, speaks of him as the Lord of creation. And there he uses this expression, all things. He created all things. In him, all things hold together. He's before all things. All things were made in him and through him. And for him, he's the Lord of creation, he's preeminent in creation. And then in verse 18, Paul then turns to the church, this new creation. And he speaks there about all things as well. That he is the head of the body of uh, the church. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn uh, from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell him. And now he uses this expression, all things again. And so some would hold that what Paul is saying is that, that there is a universality in the all things of creation. But now in what is reconciled to God, it's only those all things that are part of the church, part of this new creation. So it contextualizes this expression, all things. But I think better this, 
that Paul is speaking very broadly here about creation. And we realize that sin has affected more than just human beings and more than just the relationships that human beings have with God. That in fact, all of creation has been affected by sin. You remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, God brought this curse, Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you realize that without the fall there would be no television program on the, winter, on the weather channel called Storm Stories? Now, there wouldn't be anything on TV at all if it wasn't for sin, probably, or at least the news. But, 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 but you realize that the earth changed when sin entered. Here's how Paul reports that in Romans and chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present uh, time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So you get the setup. He's going to talk about that which is to come, the glory that's to be revealed. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So all of a sudden he's personifying creation in some sense, as if if creation is on its figurative toes waiting for this event to happen, this revealing of the sons of God that is for Jesus to return. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, wasn't creation's fault. The dirt should have said, Wait a minute, this isn't fair. So not willingly, you see, but was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you get this sense that not only are we waiting for this final time, this consummation of all that is, and this redemption, but so is creation in a very real way. Now, so Paul goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, the creation groans, we groan, as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're waiting for bodies, creation's waiting for new creation. And that's been, that's been the word of, of, of truth coming through the scripture Throughout the whole Bible, even the Old Testament, for instance, uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this time in Isaiah and chapter 11, um, speaks of the coming of the Messiah in the first opening verses of Isaiah chapter 11 and and the work of this Messiah in righteousness. And the end result of that begins in verse 6. You know this passage. Uh, This is a Christmas card passage. Uh, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now you realize how odd that would be. Okay, you have this wolf that eats lambs and they're hanging out together. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion uh, 
and the fattened calf together, and little children shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion and the shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. No mother in their right mind will let that happen. Now, but then, again, figurative, we don't understand this whole young child thing in the context of glory, but he's speaking poetically, but truthfully, saying, understand the peace that's happening here. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. We don't know a mountain like that right now. We don't know a place on this earth where there isn't hurt and destruction. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the roots of Jesse, who shall stand for a signal for the peoples of him, the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read this of that day. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. There shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water the haunt of the jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That's my life verse, by the way. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah chapter 65. And verse 25. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind but be glad and rejoice forever in, which I, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the sound, in it the sound of weeping nor the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And you shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, there'll be blessing. You don't have to worry about your stuff. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for there shall be the offspring of the blessed of the, blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I'll answer. While they, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust and dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. The apostle Peter puts it like this. Second Peter and chapter 3. And verse 11. Since 
All these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening for the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and we see it. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The apostles saying this. That God's redemption is complete. What we need as human beings will all be supplied. In our profession of faith this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism, we read that interesting little expression. We talked about it last Wednesday evening together. That all things must be subservient to my salvation. All things. Even this reconciliation of the earth will work for our salvation, the salvation of God's people. Why? Because God's people need an earth. We need an earth that's as pure and holy, if you will, as he is, as we will be. We're striving to be a holy people on an earth that is not redeemed in the midst of a world that is not redeemed. He says, no, 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 reconciliation, peace will come even to the earth. doesn't mean that all will be saved, though all of God's enemies will be put under his feet. They'll be banished from this new earth so that upon it, on God's holy mountain, will be a place that will reflect him utterly. The application to this is worship. And great hope. Let's pray, Father. We trust you. You've thought of everything. Even more than that. By way of the blood of Christ, you've accomplished everything. May I, may we, never bow to another. May we never trust in another. And may it be the very bent of our lives to speak to others about this, that they too may know of this great reconciliation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Our response will be to sing together. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy, to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forever. And together let us sing. Amen.